0: the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome everyone once again to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to welcome everyone to the show. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, which now at this point dates back to last year. Our, uh, what is slowly becoming a traditional Christmas Guidon episode. We took a look at the, uh, <laughs> magical, magical installment of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Alpha's Magical Christmas. Uh, nothing quite so magical here today as we're getting back into the swing of things with a, uh, a Gamera film. We're going to be taking a look at the um, 1968 film Gamera vs. Virus, also known in this country by the very evocative and highly inaccurate title, Destroy All Planets. And we're also going to be getting back into our coverage of the Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors series. We're taking a look at issue number 15 of that series as we uh, are kind of on the uh, the tail end of that series now as we're kind of rapidly pushing our way towards the finale of the series. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, a few news and notes before we get into the show proper. As I said, uh, it uh, Christmas was just past us, so of course I got some Daikaiju stuff for Christmas, what I like to talk about here. My brother got me the Gamera Volume 1 Blu-ray set. Now this is uh, timely because Gamera vs. Virus is one of the films on this Blu-ray. It also includes the original giant monster Gamma, Gamma versus Barragon, and Gamma versus Gauss, and of course the second volume of that Blu-ray also includes the, I uh, should say, includes the four uh, later Showa Gamma films, which is Gamma versus and uh, um, Gamma versus Jiger, Gamma versus Zegra, and Super Monster Gamma. So, really, really nice. Um, uh, Blu-ray set of the Gamera Showa films. They're all in Japanese with uh, English subtitles, so if you want the original Japanese versions of these Gamera films, this is a really good option. My wife got me a wonderful, wonderful volume, and it is called Steve Ditko's Monsters Gorgo, and this is a really handsome hardcover volume that collects all of Steve Ditko's work on the Charlton Gorgo title from the early 60s. Now, um, Ditko was working on this book for Charlton along with Conga, and there's actually a Conga volume that's kind of the uh, the counterpoint to the Gorgo volume, at the same time that he was doing work at Marvel doing Amazing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. So if you're a fan of Steve Ditko or a fan of Gorgo, or Konga for that matter, or just Monster Comics from the 60s, I really, really recommend this book. It's a really nice, about 250-page hardcover, oversized book. It's just a real pleasure to read, really great stuff, and really nice artwork from Ditko as well. And then my father uh, got me a little diorama of uh, Megajiris. And I've got a lot of these little dioramas. They're maybe about, I don't know, three inches by three inches. Maybe about three inches tall. And they're little multi-piece Gashapon dioramas. I've got a lot of them. Megajiris is one that I didn't have. I thought this was really nice. And Megajiris is a neat-looking monster to begin with. So, nah, it, nice selection of Daikaiju stuff for Christmas. Did you guys get anything interesting, giant monster-related for Christmas? Write me and let me know. I'd love to hear about it. In other news, we do have uh, some more information. Crunchyroll, as we have said previously, has become your source for watching Ultraman series subtitled in the U.S., and at... as of right now, and this is always subject to be changed, but as of right now, Crunchyroll has Ultraman Leo, Ultraman 80, Ultraman Max, and Ultraman Mavis available for streaming. Uh, as with uh, all Crunchyroll shows, if you're a premium member, you can get all of the series immediately. If you're a regular, um, uh, just run-of-the-mill member, I guess, you have to wait for them to update uh, each new batch of episode. but once they're up, they're up I think they stay up forever, so if you're patient, you can just wait for them all to be released. But lots of great Ultraman out there to watch now, and it's all uh, legal. And you can watch it for free if you're willing to be patient. Uh, We've also got a little interesting piece of Godzilla merchandise coming up that I saw on SciFiJapan.com. Thought I'd pass this along. Due out in the summer of 2015, Diamond Select is uh, soliciting a Godzilla pizza cutter. Because nothing says appropriate food for a Japanese film like Pizza Pie. This is, retails at $14.99, and because it's uh, from Diamond Select, you can find it in your Previews catalog and any uh, online stores that let you order out of the Previews catalog. You, know, you can probably pick this up. It's oh man, it's funny between this and the bottle opener. You know, I think you can. Uh, we're gonna slowly start outfitting the entire kitchen with uh, Godzilla stuff. I think that'd be a, a fun, uh, you know, a fun decor that I'm sure no wife ever would ever have a problem with. Lastly, we have some release dates for upcoming uh, Daikaiju films from Legendary Pictures. Now, these have all been announced, uh, but we did not have release dates for them for a while, just kind of vague dates. But my brother Jason has come to my aid in this uh, regard, and here's what Jay writes. He goes, uh, As of Fangoria, issue number 336, here are some release dates that would be of interest to your fans. Skull Island, which is the Legendary's new King Kong picture, uh, is November 4th, 2016. Pacific Rim 2 right now is penciled in at April 17th, 2017, and then finally Godzilla 2, June 18th, 2018. Now I and uh, and and he says I'll have a set review heading your way soon. Signed, Jason. Uh, Jay really appreciate these because I didn't see these and I don't read Fangoria all that regularly, so I probably wouldn't have seen them. So that's appreciated. Interesting that they're doing um. It's one a year, even though there's really only six months between Skull Island and Pacific Rim 2, and then a little more than a year between Pacific Rim 2 and Godzilla 2. still cool to have one each year. I know, just keep that feeding the daikaiju habit, I guess. Also, very, very appropriate that Godzilla 2 is coming out the weekend of my birthday. Uh, So, a little birthday present for me. Uh, if you will, so uh, that's all the news and notes I've got for right now. If you find out anything interesting, or you know, you see some new merchandise or something that is giant monster-related, please go ahead and send it in Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll repeat this email in the outro of the show. Uh, but for right now, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and start talking about Gamera versus Virus right here on Earth Destruction Directive. In 1977 the world changed the film industry was transformed the popular culture rocked and young minds forever altered star wars arrived and nothing would ever be the same again though everyone wasn't affected in the same way Everyone was affected. This is My Star Wars Story. My Star Wars Story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our film this time out is Gamera versus Virus, known in Japan as Gamera Tai Bairasu, uh, VB confusion in Japanese there, and was released uh, in March of 1968 in Japan, made its way over to the States as Destroy All Planets by AIP-TV, I play, obviously, on the uh, Godzilla film Destroy All Monsters. Oddly, this was one of the films not dubbed by Sandy Frank, so there is no Sandy Frank version of Gamera vs. Virus, uh, so um, for a long time, Destroy All Planets was the only way you could see this film in the U.S., A strange spaceship approaches the Earth, intent on conquering the planet. But their attempt at invasion is foiled by the sudden appearance of Gamera. Gamera smashes their ship, but before the alien's craft explodes, they're able to broadcast a message to their home planet to send reinforcements to stop Gamera. Later, back on Earth, a Boy Scout troop visits an aquarium, where some scientists have developed a small two-man pocket submarine. Two of the scouts, Massau and Jim, have snuck on board the sub, however, and rewired it to operate in reverse. They reverse the flow of the neutrons or whatever. Despite their hijinks, the boys do eventually get a chance to pilot the sub and end up having an undersea race with Gamera, the friend of all children. But the merriment is cut short when the second alien ship arrives and traps Gamera in a force bubble using their super catch-ray. Gamera is able to help the boys escape from the bubble, but he is trapped, giving the aliens a chance to scan Gamera's brain and find a weakness. Observing his past exploits, the aliens decide that it is Gamera's devotion to children that can be exploited. Gamera soon escapes, but the aliens capture Masao and Jim, and using a brainwave control device, force Gamera to do their bidding. While Masao and Jim wander around the ship, they find the aliens called the Virens, who look like humans, save for their bright, glowing eyes. They also find a squid monster, about human-sized, which they assume is another captive. Gamera, meanwhile, is forced to attack the Earth, familiarly destroying a dam and then laying siege to Tokyo. More on that in a bit. The boys are eventually able to use Masao's two-way wrist radio to contact the authorities, where they plead with them to destroy the ship and save the Earth. But the UN has decided that they cannot sacrifice the boys and agree to surrender to the Virens. But the boys take matters into their own hands and sabotage the ship to remove Gamera from the Virens' control and manage their own escape. Free of their thrall, Gamera proceeds to smash this second ship. The Virens go to the squid monster, who is actually their commander, Virus. The aliens reveal themselves to all bee-squid monsters, and the entire crew merges to become the giant monster Virus. Virus and Gamora clash violently in both the sea and on the beach. Virus can't match Gamera's power, but is able to use his sharp, spike-like head to stab Gamera repeatedly in his soft underbelly. But our hero is not stopped, flying into low Earth orbit with Verus still stuck in his stomach. The freezing temperatures are no problem for Gamora but they freeze Verus solid. Gamera spins around and around until the frozen Verus falls back to the sea and dies. Crisis averted, Massow and Jem reunite with their families and the leaders of the scout troop, and they all celebrate Gamera's victory. Yeah, Gamera, he continues his face turn here, um, which was started in the previous film, Gamera vs. Gauss, but he goes beyond being a hero into full-blown kid's superhero. I mean, he was the hero in Gamera vs. Gauss, but this takes it to a a, a new level, let's just say. Uh, some notes. The film starts out with an action sequence of Gamera attacking the Viren's ship. This is a, actually a really nice little sequence. The Viren's ship looks really cool. Basically, it's five spheres that are yellow and black striped look like a bumblebee's uh tushy so to speak and it, they're connected by little tubes in between them and they're constantly rotating and it rotates really smoothly and it looks really nice. It's actually a really nice model effect from Dai, which a lot of times their models look uh, for ships and stuff look kind of chintzy and toy-like, and we'll see that a little bit later in this film. But this ship and the second ship, which is identical to it, really look nice. And the sequence itself plays nicely with um, the the Virens using the... Basically, they they flip the spheres out in order to spray Gamera with a, a... cold mist to burn out and choke out his atomic flame but Gamma smashes through the wall and you see his head peering in as he sets the ship on fire it's actually a really nice sequence to start the film with and it gets it going right away without any uh having an action sequence right up front without having to use you know stock footage or you know footage from the last film or something like that because we've got enough of that in this film as we will get to our heroes are a pair of Boy Scouts, and if that doesn't tell you that this is clearly a kid-focused film, nothing will. This is really a big departure from the previous films, even the films that had, you know, uh, child uh, characters in them. Gamera versus um, Gauss had uh, had, a, had a kid in it. Uh, the original Gamma, of course, had you know had Kenny in it. Uh, but they weren't the focus and they weren't the, really the stars like this is. The adults' characters were still the stars of those films. Whereas here, Masow and Jim are plainly the two main characters, and there's no question about it. And the adults are all, you know, kind of secondary to the point that. You know, we we get a lot more characterization from the kids than we do any of the adults. So just a big departure, but it's what most people remember the Gamera films being, so we've finally gotten there. It's only taken us the fourth out of the eighth films of the a series to get there. At one point during the their race with Gamera, Massau tells Jim, Oh, Gamera won't hurt won't hurt children. And I'm really not sure where this comes from in character. I mean, obviously, at this point, we know, the audience know that Gamera is a friend to all children. But Gamera hadn't, he'd only been shown to help one kid in the previous film. And he also had, very recently, had still attacked mankind. So this idea that Gamera won't hurt anyone kind of comes out of left field. But again, it's a daikaiju movie. We're going to, you know, have to just accept that and move on. Uh, the race with Gamera is actually really charming. <laughs> the uh, The pocket sub looks like a toy you know i mean as a model it's just it's just not great but the sequence itself of them zipping around gamma you know passing him letting him pass them and gamma swimming and nodding his head along he's actually kind of bobbing his head along to the Gamera music which is even funnier when you when you get right down to it but it's a nice sequence and Gamera himself looks nice the suits very similar to the one that we got in the previous film it still looks nice it's uh you know nicely articulated and uh, the eyes you know, move around nicely, they're, they're clearly articulated eyes. You have to, I think, have a certain appreciation for gamma to appreciate the, uh, the effects, but it's, it's nice, and it doesn't look... Um, it, it looks like they, they did a, took some time and care with the new effects footage in this film. Uh, the Virens shoot the Super Catch Ray. And what's interesting about the super catch ray is it actually makes, like, a little dome bubble over Gamera. Yeah, almost as if, like, you put a, like, flipped a salad bowl over and put it over him. Because the kids are also trapped in their sub inside the little uh, bubble of the super catch ray. And Gamera's able to get his claw underneath it and lift it up so they can get the sub out. I just thought that was really funny. Um, just, just from an image, it's like... Uh, I don't know, it's like, it kind of gave me like a Looney Tunes vibe, that you just, you know, pick the the, the force field up and duck underneath it. Now that leads to the, what this film is probably most infamous for, is the massive, massive amounts of stock footage, as the Virens look deep into Gamera's memories to try and find some weakness that they can attack. So we're treated to the stock, we're treated to the footage from giant monster Gamera, of Gamera's birth breaking out of the Arctic ice, And we then cut to the fight scenes from Gamera versus Berrigan. And they've combined both fight scenes into one sequence. Uh, First of them fighting where Berrigan freezes Gamera, and then later their fight at the end. Now what's interesting is that they cut out the, uh, they they have Gamera wounding Berrigan with his claw, and they have him dragging him to the water, but they cut out the actual uh, very end of that scene where Gamera drags Berrigan underwater and drowns him. We then get the stock footage from Gamma vs. Gauss, and again, they combine the two fights between Gamera and Gauss into one long fight. We do get the sequence of Gamera ripping off part of Gauss's foot, and um, we get, you know, again, they cut the very end of Gamera you know, finishing Gauss off. But we do get to see him dragging Gauss up the mountain with his mouth. Um, the footage from Giant Monster Gamera is in black and white. <laughs> now, it, it, again, it, it's in snow, and Gamera comes out, and he's really dark, so it's not as bad. But it's still in black and white. It didn't even try and tint it or anything like that. Um, it lasts more than 19 minutes. I mean, just straight 19 minutes of stock footage without any new footage laid in between them. I mean, there's a couple of voiceovers. In 1966, he fought Baragon, you know, but that is, there's no you know nothing to break it up in you know, there are Godzilla films that use a lot of stock footage Ga- Godzilla versus Gigan comes readily to mind but they mix and match it here it's just whole sequences inserted into the film and what's amazing is that this is not this is not just AIP doing this this is in the original this is in Gamma versus Virus as well so this was clearly a cost cutting measure from uh, from Dai in order to kind of pad their film out and give kids more monster fights without having to shoot a bunch of new monster fights, and from that respect, I can I can dig that because I think if I had seen this film, I didn't see destroy all Mon- destroy all planets until I was older. I think if I had seen this as a kid, I would really enjoy this. Getting you know a, a little twenty minute interval of monster fights in the middle of the movie, but you know taken on its own merits, it's a little strange when you get down to it. After our stock footage is done, the uh, Virens capture Masao and Jim, and we get them to lots and lots of footage of Masao and Jim wandering around the ship. Now, the Virens, who are essentially blackmailing Gamera, because they say that if you don't obey us and, you know, let us put this mind-control device on you, we will kill the kids. And, of course, Gamera, being the friend to all children, won't, you know, uh, won't kill, won't let harm come to the children. Now, all the Virens are male, now this is odd for the Gamera series because stereotypically the aliens are female. We'll see that in the later installments in this film that feature in this film series that feature aliens. So it's just interesting to see. It reminded me of the aliens from Planet X from Monster Zero over in the Godzilla series. And the fact that they all look alike and they're all just tall Japanese men. <laughs> I guess when you're making your film in Japan, tall Japanese men is what your humanoid aliens look like. But that's neither here nor there. When Meso and Jim they find Virus in a cage, and they assume he's a a, a captive monster. Now, if I find a human-sized, six-tentacled squid with human-looking eyes and a head that looks like a half-peeled banana, I'm going to be a little surprised by it. You know, that's just me. These kids play it off as if they see this every day. I was like oh it's it's a squid he must be they must have captured him they must be bringing him to a zoo and there's this whole thing about should we let him go and it's like no, we shouldn't let him go It's like well, he's captured it's like well what if he's dangerous and it's this goes on and on and the whole time virus is just standing there he't he don't care you know it's 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 a really just unusual scene but it's nice to get the little foreshadowing on virus but just odd. <laughs> I guess when you make a, a kid film, you try to have kid logic, and in kid logic in a monster movie, you can't be surprised when you see a monster, I suppose. So um, After the brain control device is put on Gamera, we're trying to do some more stock footage. First, we get the uh, attack on the dam from the beginning of Godzilla vs. Berrigan. I, I don't really have much of a problem with this being reused because this is probably the best special effects sequence in the entire Gamera show—a series, so I'm okay with that. It's like I said, it's just very familiar. It's like, wow, we've destroyed a dam much the same way, not not two years ago. And then things get a little, a little wackier because now we're treated to even more black and white footage from Giant Monster Gamera of Gamera Attacking Tokyo. And again, if they had put up maybe a green tint on it or something, or even sepia-toned it, it, it might have looked uh, a little bit better, but it just stands out. Like a, like just oh, it stands out really really badly. Just you know, just seek like about it's like a, I don't know three or four minutes footage, just all in black and white in the middle of this film that's in color. And you know, again, I, I understand that they, you know, that the original Giant Monster Gamma was shot in black and white because it was their first uh, kaiju film, and they want it, shooting in black and white is easier than shooting in color. But yeah, uh, I mean, there, there's others. There's other. I don't know. I guess there's other ways you could have done this, but I can also appreciate that they're up against a budget crunch and there's not, you know, you, you do what you got to do to make this story work with the money that you have. Now, it's interesting is there is a nice new special effects shot that's mixed in with all the stock footage in this sequence. There's a shot of Gamera in um, his uh, UFO mode spinning around with the Viren's ship also spinning around above the city. Basically, the idea being that the Virens are sort of leading Gamera along as they're broadcasting their threat to... Um, you know, surrender or Gamera, we will order Gamera to destroy your cities. It's a really nice shot because everything is spinning really smoothly. Every time you're rotating something, you know, you know, it is, if you think about you're spinning something around like a, a ball or think about a plate spinning on on, a, on your finger or on a stick, you know, once you get a little bit of wobble in there, it, it looks, it, it, it ruins it. It kills the effect. The Viren's ship, I don't know how they managed to do it, but it rotates perfectly flat for the every time we see it and it looks fantastic and Gamera the him spinning it's okay if he moves a little bit because you know he's he's got mass and he's not as um uh, symmetrical as the Viren's ship, but the combination of the Viren's ship spinning and Gamma spinning above the city, it's a really nice little shot. And uh, again, I like that some time and attention was obviously paid to making the Viren's ship look, um, you know, look really good and really a little menacing despite it being looking like a bumblebee because... The the ship is and the Virens on the ship are the bigger threat through most of the film. Virus, the giant monster, only shows up at the end. So really, Gamera's is fighting the Viren aliens through most of the film. So that their ship looks as nice as it does is a nice touch. Um, when Masson and Jim they get in touch with the authorities, they say no, don't don't uh, surrender to the Earth. Sacrifice us. They want to make the sacrifice to save the Earth, but the UN wants to surrender. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I'm just going to leave it alone. I think that's, you know, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. But um, all kidding aside, again, this gets back, I think, to the uh, the kid vid mindset. I don't think any kid put in this situation would, you know, would say, oh, we're going to surrender the earth and save you. I think most kids of the right age would probably say to go ahead and, uh, you know, don't worry about us because, you know, make the heroic sacrifice. I think we, un- you know, with kids at a certain age all think of themselves in that heroic role. So I like this a lot, and I like that the boys don't just accept their fate. They go and, uh, they go and sabotage the ship. So it's actually set up. It's actual foreshadowing. The way that they uh, screw up uh, the controls on the submarine, they do the same thing here. They just start switching things around so things flow in reverse, reverse the, the neutron flow, and uh, are able to make it so that the Virens in Guyamara does the opposite of what he tell, of what they tell him to do, and then the catch ray, instead of transporting them up to the ship, transports them back down to the surface. And on a kid vid level, it, it succeeds. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you really think about it. But again, this is a kiddie film, so where you know it, its logic works in and, of, in and of itself, so I can't fault it too much for that. Once Gamera is released from the Virens' control, he throws their ship around like a rag doll. It's actually kind of funny. Um, When Virus, and and later when Virus is is giant, he actually starts picking up pieces of the ship and throwing it at Gamera. So it's like it's useless at this point. Now it's just a bludgeon. It's like an old um, Warner's gangster film you know, you fire your six shots, then you throw the pistol. That's what it, it is. It is gangster film law. Um, when all the Virans go see Virus and uh, what's funny is in the dub they call him Master, and in the uh, subtitles they go, Boss! Boss! <laughs> Which is, I don't know, there's something humorously Japanese to me about a group of aliens calling their monster overlord Boss. I don't know why. <laughs> it just really makes me chuckle. So what Boss Verus does is he swipes his tentacle at them and all their heads pop off. And we see inside, wriggling out of the human suits, are the, uh, the Virans the little squid Viren. So I thought that was a neat kind of invasion of the body snatchers uh, sort of riff there with them hiding and disguising themselves as humans. Uh, the, the boys, Masao specifically, speculates that they must have been actual humans that the Virens killed and took over, which is, uh, and wore like suits, which is kind of cool. You know, it uh, reminds me a bit of um, the Simians from later on in the 70s in the two Mechagodzilla films who uh, disguised themselves as humans and then were this hideous ape um, alien underneath. Then, of course, it's time for the big fight at the end. And now, Virus, as I said, he's kind of a six-tentacled uh, squid, and his head has three segments on it, like if you took a banana and peeled it in three parts, and they hang down. And then he's able to pull those parts back up and form it into a spike, which is uh, sharp enough to pierce Gamera's belly. Now, Virus looks pretty good when the, the suit actor is allowed to crouch down, because the way that the suit is is that two of the tentacles are his arms, he has one tentacle hanging off his chest and one tentacle hanging off his back, and then the two other tentacles are his legs. So when he's, you know, um, for instance, when, when he's stuck in Gamma at the end and Gamera's spinning around, it's you can see clearly that it's just two legs and four tentacles hanging off of him. It looks more like Octoman than anything else. But when virus is allowed to kind of crouch down and the tentacles all kind of look like they're wriggling around, he actually looks pretty nice. And there's another scene where... Uh, Virus is in the beach, or excuse me, is underwater, and Gamera is on the beach, and Virus reaches up with his tentacles and starts pulling him down. He looks sort of like the squid from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at that point. So Virus looks pretty good sometimes. Sometimes, like I said, when he's standing around or when he's walking, it, it kind of kills the illusion a little bit. The other sequence that Virus looks real good in is when there's a couple of times where he crouches and then launches himself like a spear at Gamera. And again, this looks good because he looks like you would imagine a squid uh, or an octopus on land with all the tentacles writhing and then he's real low to the ground and then pushes himself up. Virus is one of those monsters that seems to work better in um, alternative media rather than in live action. Uh, Verus looks really cool, and I have the Trendmasters Verus toy that my brother got me for Christmas last year, and it looks really, really neat when you can actually have him standing on his tentacles and not worry about how do you fit a, a, an actor inside of the suit. Uh, similarly, Dark Horse did a Gamera comic in the 90s that featured Verus, and again, in a comic book, you can have him, you know, just wriggling around on his tentacles, and he looks uh, better than, again, not having to worry about the, how you physically fit somebody inside the suit. Um, at one point, Gamora grabs Viras by the tentacles and picks him up and just bonks his head over and over again on the ground. <laughs> it's, it's all the indignity of it all. It's like I'm a commander of a spaceship. I've flown light years across the, across the dark void of space to lead an invasion of Earth, and here I am getting bonked around on the head by a giant turtle. It's like, oh, if I survive this, I'm never gonna live it down. It's it's also really just a great a great scene. Uh, another one that's known for this is Gamera grabs Virus after, after Verus pulls him into the, into the sea, Gamera grabs him and then activates his two rear jets and basically goes like, like, it looks like he's water skiing while riding on Virus. It's actually very funny. And they play the Gamera music as he's just, you know, cruising around, his weight kicking up behind him. Verus eventually ducks his head down. And uh, what that does is, he, Virus gets stuck, and it sends Gamera flying, and that's when Gamera lands on his back, which gives Virus the opportunity to stab him, and that impalement, youch, that looks so painful, because it's a big, big hole, a big wound that they put in Gamera's uh, underbelly, you know, you know, and uh, I mean, it's a turtle's underbelly, that's relatively soft. So uh, it, I mean, it looks really bad. It's a lot of blood, you know. Typical kind of Gamera monster on monster fight when there's a lot of blood. But um, you know, uh, it's and it's tough. And but it does. It is a nice thing. Do so you think? How the heck is, is Gamera going to get out of this? He's got this, you know, big wound, and and Viris is stuck in him at one point. Uh, but you know, our hero Gamera, he's he's pretty pretty resourceful when you get right down to it. So the way that he beats Gamera, I thought was actually, or excuse me, the way that Gamera beats virus, I thought was actually really clever. Because, when you think about it, they've already established, not only in this film, but in previous films, that the cold of space does not bother Gamera. Because when he escapes from the rocket, at the beginning of Gamera vs. Barragon, he flies through space, and it doesn't bother him. And so, and at the beginning of this film, he flies off into space to attack the first Viren's ship, and the cold of space doesn't bother him. But, Virus. Obviously, the environment of space must damage him somehow because he they need a spaceship. They can't travel through space without their spaceship. So by bringing him into low Earth orbit, and you see it's actually a neat kind of time-lapse effect of the ice building on um, on Virus. Shots like this always make me think, of course, of Lon Chaney Jr. turning into the Wolfman. Uh, and, and then you see him just frozen solid. And then Gamera spinning and spinning and spinning until he finally falls off and impacts on the sea and dies. And it's hard to see exactly what it is, but it looks like he's broken off into all little tiny tiny virus frozen chunks. It's like, mmm, mmm, I'm sure that smells wonderful when it thaws. Uh, Overall, this would have made a very strong 75-minute feature, but at 90 minutes, it's a bit padded. Uh, as I said, as a, as a kid vid movie, I think it works because you've got a lot of action. You've got the kids kind of running around things work on a kid logic level. They got this kind of magic spaceship that can, you know, create juice and sandwiches on demand. And you know, the aliens are scary, but they're not too scary. There's like I said, there's there's a good fight with the monsters. There's some fun stuff with a middle mini submarine and Gamera playing with the kids. So I think it works on a kiddie level. Um, But it's, it, on the whole, though, the stock footage does kind of make the whole thing look a little cheap. It's kind of the same problem that Godzilla vs. Gigan suffers from. There's so much stock footage. And after a while, you just, like, as a a grown-up viewer, you're like, wow, it just, it just stands out after a while, and it kind of tires you. Um... The new stuff, though, is generally good, which is the, the really frustrating part of this. You know, the the new sequences we get, not only of Gamera fighting Verus, but Gamera interacting with the two Viren's ships, are real nice. I mean, the sequence at the beginning is a great little, I think it's only like three, four minute sequence of Gamera fighting the Viren's ship. It's really nice, but it was clear that they didn't have the budget to do the effects, um... They could do the effects are nice, but clearly they didn't have enough to do as many effects as we would get in in uh, other films of uh, not only this series but other films of the genre of this era. Uh, Gamera shines, of course, whenever he's on screen. He's Gamera, you know. If you're watching, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have some kind of affection for Gamera, and he is just so charming when he's on screen, just bobbing his head along, having a good time, you know, just doing what. Uh, doing what a prehistoric antediluvian giant turtle's got to do yeah. it's worth checking out but this is, this is really does mark the turning point of the series you know gamma versus gauss is generally considered the best one of the series and it does feature gamma you know behaving as a hero but here we've kind of crossed the rubicon a bit where we're no longer making kind of films that appeal to both children and adults this is very much cheerle- clearly aimed at a, a kiddie audience And there's nothing wrong with that. Just keep that in mind when you go in. Don't go into this expecting something with the same tone as, you know, Gamma vs. Bowery Gun or Gamma vs. Gauss, and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, It's not deep. It doesn't ask you to think at all. And it really is a big monster mash. I think younger viewers will get more out of this than older viewers. Verus is a cool monster. The Viren's ship is awesome. I really love it. It's um, right up there with the the, uh, X-Aliens... Uh, ship from monster zero as one of my favorite tokusatsu UFOs of all time. And, uh, it, the like I said, the new effects are real nice. And honestly, the stock footage is okay. Just don't, don't watch this on a marathon, you know, <laughs> watch it on its own. So the stock footage is not getting, beating you over the head. Um, now this is available on DVD in several formats. Of course, Destroy All Planets is in the public domain. Alpha Video has a nice release of this with some nice artwork of Gamera fighting Virus on the cover. You can also find Destroy All Planets available for free on the uh, <clears throat> on archive.org which is actually I watched Destroy All Planets for this because I don't have a blu-ray player on my laptop So I couldn't watch it on my lunch break. So I watched uh, Destroy All Planets. There's not much difference between destroy all planets and gamma versus virus, a few scenes here and there. Uh, so. There's, uh, you know, it, it's it's not a situation where it was massively overhauled. I think there may be a few more minutes of stock footage in *Destroy All Planets*, but not much. So either it's not where, not a situation where if you watch one versus the other, you get a different experience. They're very similar films in this sense. Now *Gamma* versus *Virus* itself is available on DVD on a double feature from Shout Factory along with *Gamma* versus *Gauss*, and that includes both the uh, the original Japanese. Uh, language with subtitles and the Destroy All Planets dub. So, that's a good option. And, of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it is available on Volume 1 of the uh, Blu-ray collection, the Gamera uh, Blu-ray collection, as well as the Gamera Blu-ray Complete Collection uh, blue, um, DVD and Blu-ray set. So, uh, if you want to check Gamera's Virus you got a couple options. Uh, give it a shot. It's worth watching. If you're, like I said, if you're a Giant Monster fan, I think you are got to owe it to yourself to watch this one because it is a lot of fun. Virus is a very neat monster, and there's plenty a monster action. You certainly get a lot of monster fights for your, for your uh, cost of admission in Gamma vs. Virus. No one's ever going to deny that. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shoguns! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raiden, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately, from Mattel. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it is time to take a look at Shogun Warriors number fifteen uh, from the Marvel Comics Group. Shogun Warriors fifteen was cover dated April of nineteen eighty, was released on or about January first, nineteen eighty, and this of course comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which you can find at dcindexes.com. Our cover says uh, Richard Carson at the mercy of a rene- of a renegade riding, and we see. Um, Richard Carson in the grasp of Riding as Riding is firing uh, rocket arrows at Dangard Ace as Combatra swoops by and fires a finger laser at Riding. And in the foreground, we have the extreme foreground. We've got a, uh, a gentleman in a suit holding a samurai sword. It says, forward, fellow Yakuza. Conquer Shogun Sanctuary for the honor of our criminal brotherhood. And we see a fellow uh, Yakuza members wielding swords, uh, charging toward the Shogun Sanctuary in the background. Um, I just want to say, I thought the Yakuza was a secret organization. Maybe they don't yell out you know, their name and all that. Uh, I like the cover. It's it's um, Herb Trimpey does the cover here, and I'll say why this is uh, noteworthy in a minute. Uh, real dynamic. Uh, we've gotten back to the idea of the Shoguns fighting each other, which is something we haven't seen since, I think, the issue f- four or five, somewhere, the, somewhere in the first year of the series we got a cover of them fighting uh, against combatra. But real nice, real nice colors and shading. I like um, Richard Carson's helmet flying off as he's kind of pounding his fists on Rydine's fist. Nice cover indeed. Now, our story this time out is titled The Insider. Our writer is Stephen Grant, penciler, Mike Vosberg, inker, Bruce D. Patterson. Letterer is James Novak, colorist, Roger Silfer. Editor is Alan Milgram, and our editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. At the Shogun Sanctuary, the Shogun Warriors train, but Dr. Tambora is not impressed with their performance, noting that their efficiency is way down. After the training session, Richard Carson brushes off Genji and goes off to his quarters. But all is not as it seems. Quote-unquote Richard is in fact a robot who signals his controllers, the Yakuza. Boss Mishu has captured the real Richard Carson, and they intend to use his robot duplicate to steal rydeen for their own sinister purposes. Richard fights off his captors and tries to escape, but is recaptured before he can warn his fellow Shogun pilots. The Yakuza tie up Carson and put him in a car, then wedge the controls so that he will careen off a cliff and into the Shogun Sanctuary, also allowing the Yakuza access to the sanctuary. But Carson draws on his stunt driving background and is able to maneuver himself such that he is able to steer the car with his feet. Crashing through the front door, Carson's able to plow into a control panel but survives. With the plot exposed, the fake Carson shimmers into riding and attacks. But Alongo Savage similarly shivers into Danguard Ace and grabs Riding, taking the battle outside. As the battle rages, the yakuza advance on the sanctuary. Well, Richard Carson rides along with Genji in Kambatra. Genji splits Combatra into the five modules, with Delta V-1 seeming to crash harmlessly into riding and bounce off. But the move was a diversion to drop the real Richard Carson onto his Shogun. The real and fake Carsons duke it out, and the imposter reveals that he has been drugging the other Shogun pilots' food in order to weaken them in support of the Yakuza plot. Richard overcomes his doppelganger through sheer force of will in time to stop the Yakuza's advance with a rocket arrow. Crisis averted, the Shogun pilots take a well earned rest. Next issue, The Light That Failed. Hmm, now, did you notice something odd about the credits this time out, writer Stephen Grant, penciler Mike Vosberg? This is very clearly a fill-in issue, uh, as Doug Mensch and Herb Trimpey have handled the writing and penciling on the series, every aspect of the series up until this point. So it definitely stands out. It's amazing how much it stands out. But when you think about it, we've had 14 issues of a consistent creative team. Now, I'm reading some other Marvel stuff from right around this era where it seems the, you know, the, the artist changes every issue, and that was on mainstream superhero books. So to get this little robot book having a, main, you know, a, a very consistent creative team, in retrospect, that's pretty cool. you know. It, it really gave the book its identity. So it, this really stands out as a fill-in issue. The art um, by Mike Vosberg along with anchor Bruce Patterson, it's pretty good, but they, they don't look right. You know what I'm saying? Because it's not Herb Trimpy. and um, I think Mike Esposito was doing the inks previously. So it, it, they look—they just look a little off. If this had—if this had been the art team from the beginning, this would be a perfectly good issue. But because it's not, they don't look the way that we're expecting them without um, Trimpey's normal pencil work. Now, of course, we do get a little bit of Trimpey because we get this very nice uh, Trimpey cover, as I said. Um, the uh, the face in the front of the Yakuza Man, it's, it's a little on the nose for a Yakuza guy with his mustache and all that, but it's not a caricature. it He certainly looks Asian without being, like, you know, something from the Golden Age or something like that. Um, page one is our splash page. It's pretty nice, actually. It's a good foreshadowing because we're seeing the Shoguns train against each other, and from the layout of it... Um, you know, riding is facing off against both Kambatra and Dangard Ace, so it's nice foreshadowing to the fact that that's going to be the actual fight we're going to get later on in the, uh, in the, in the book. Now again, um, Vosberg does a, a pretty good job, but it, it seems to me that robots may not be his strong suit because his, his humans look uh, good, but the robots look very stiff throughout most of the issue. Uh, turning over to page three, speaking of human forms, Richard Carson, much beefier, uh, under uh, Vosberg's pencils. I mean, he's got like a barrel chest, and uh, he's got a very big, you know, muscular arms and legs. He's got a very typical kind of superheroic physique. Uh, I imagine that as a stunt driver, Carson would be in good shape, but probably not ripped up like, uh, you know, Batman or Captain America. I mean, this looks, he looks almost like he could be Captain America with this physique that he's got. And again, that's not a knock on Vosberg. That's just the way that, that that's a standard type of body type for in the comic book. So I can't it's not a complaint. Again, it's just it's just different, you know. Um turning over to page seven, now things get a little odd because the Yakuza are standing on a cliff and they're walking down with binoculars at the Shogun Sanctuary. Now this is where Kind of the fill-in-y nature of this uh, book starts to lose me a little bit. Shogun Sanctuary was on an island. It was not surrounded by cliffs. So how do they have you know a road that they can drive down to Shogun Sanctuary when it was clearly shown to be an island? So that's kind of things that you know Doug Mensch, as the uh, the series creator and the guy who wrote the little bible that we got in the back of one of the early issues, would know that. But that's not something necessarily that you know a, a filling guy is going to know. You're going to just get kind of a broad overview of the characters. Oh yeah, they hang up the Shogun Sanctuary. So that kind of left me. Uh, that took me out of the story a little bit, and I have to admit that um, you know I I, I probably. It probably shouldn't have bothered me as much as it did, but it, it really did because it's such an established part of the Shogun Warriors uh, um, story here at, at Marvel. Uh, turning over to page 11, panel 2, oh, Richard Carson's got insane o-eyes. His, his eyes are just gigantic with just all white, with just little black dots as he's uh, being, you know, sent on his merry way to do a. Uh, careen off the cliff and die he's just like, the crazy eyes ah the sequence of carson driving the car with his feet is actually really neat though uh it and again i like that it pulls on the fact that he was a stunt driver and would be able to probably do something like this and he's quick thinking and he um you know has nerve under ridiculous situations like this so it's a nice sequence but the crazy eyes you know <laughs> just a uh, it's oh man, he's almost like Killers from Space. If anyone's seen that film, you know, it's a big, big, big bug eyes. Uh, page 15, um, as Dangard Ace grabs Riding and flies him outside. Uh, the Shoguns look just really very stiff, and they don't have the kind of dynamic movement that Trimpy uh, typically gave them. Uh, there's one panel here; it's panel six, where both Dengard and Riding look like statues. It's just it just doesn't it doesn't really work right, and again that's. You know robots are different than drawing people, you know, that's why it's it's uh, you know That's one of the I think the strengths of having Herb trimpy on this book because trimpy sometimes is Does less detail and dynamism with his people but his robots and monsters always look really fantastic Whereas Vosberg seems to have a better handle on doing the people but less of a grasp on the robots So it just it just, unfortunately it suffers the whole book suffers because of that, because, you know, the shoguns are such a major part, obviously, of the book, so that when they look stiff, it kind of brings the art down a notch. Uh, pages 16 and 17, this getting back to what I had said previously about um, the fill-in nature kind of taking me out of the story. As Dangard and Raideen fight each other, the the weapons that they use don't match what we had seen previously Um, utilized by these shoguns. And again, this is not a situation where the shoguns had a different weapon for every scenario whenever it was needed. Uh, Munch kind of established early on, Mench established early on that they had certain armament and that each one had certain weapons available to them and that was what they used. So... Dangard Ace has heat rays in his chest instead of missiles, and then after Raidin deflects it with the buckler, which is actually pretty neat, he fires his whole fist at him, which is a function of the toy, but not one that uh, riding had in the comic. riding's ranged weapons were his Screamer Hawk missiles out of his chest and his rocket arrows. So, again, it, it's, it's funny to see him fire his fist off as a fan of the Shogun Warrior toys, but again, it, it kind of drew me out of the story as a Shogun Warrior's reader. So, it's just, you know, a function sometimes of, of a fill And then uh, some more, again, just really stiff artwork on the Shoguns here. Uh, Riding's head at one point looks like a bullet. It's just way too th- um, tall and narrow. And Dangard, uh, panel, page 17, panel three, Dangard just looks, uh, he's throwing his hands in the air like he just don't care, but he just looks really, really stiff. It's just not, not very convincing. Uh, turning over to page 19, panel four, now, this is a really nice panel, oddly, of riding, just, you know, laying into Dengard Ace with, like, a left hook, and a nice automotopy of BAM! You know, sometimes the simplest automotopy is the best one. But here, that's probably the best panel of the Shoguns in the issue, is this one panel. And I think it's because the movement now is more fluid and more human-like because we as in a writing is on the left side of the panel and we see his right leg stepping in and the left fist crossing over and we see dangard flying back out of the panel with his right arm kind of prone to the side like he's you know he's just been walloped in the chin so this this very um, kind of fluid motion, implied motion here, really helps it. And I I think it would have been better served to have more of this style of art in the rest of the book, which is more what Trimpy normally brings. And again, I hate to keep comparing this because it's not that um, uh, Mike Vosberg's art is bad. It's just different, and I've gotten so used, I think, to Herb Trimpie's, So I I may not be giving this a fair shake, but, um, you know, like I said, all all the parts of the pilots and the Yakuza, that looks really neat. It's just the robots just kind of stand out a little bit. Um, page 26, panels one and two, um, Carson is fighting with the fake Carson and he pulls a rubber Mission Impossible style mask off his face and, um... Somehow the fake Carson now is as big as like Hawk from DC Comics. I just thought that was odd. Uh, it really helps to differentiate the two of them because they're both wearing the same uniform, but now he's just uh, he's just really got a big beefy upper body. So I thought that was funny, and it does uh, put Richard at a physical disadvantage fighting against this uh, against this uh, machine. So neat sequence here of Richard basically just wrapping his arm around the guy and holding on with all his weight in order to defeat him because Richard is so he's been they've they've drugged him and kept him awake and he's just out of sorts, so he does the best he can. Uh, page 27, panel 6, uh, to stop the Yakuza, Richard fires a rocket arrow that he skims across the mountainside, causing little explosive concussions each time he does it. That seems a little overkill to use a rocket arrow against people. Yeah, he doesn't shoot them with the rocket arrow, but it seems like he could have fired it into the ground and stopped them there and, then you know, just held them and, say, you know, don't move or we'll open fire or something like that because it seems like this could have caused a rock slide or something and killed all of them. But, uh, you know, it's I, I like that it's the robot, uh, it's the shoguns that get to stop them and not the pilot specifically. Uh, interesting to see the shoguns interacting, of course, always with human-sized individuals. So it's uh, just a little strange, but I do like, the, again, the use of the rocket arrow to take it out. Overall, uh, it, it's all right. It's clearly a letdown after the big finish to the Dr. DeMonica storyline that we had last time out, it seems like to me that you know Doug mentioned Herb Trimpey really made their mark on these characters, you know, after doing them for more than a year. So getting a fill-in is just, it's just a little jarring. It's, it's, it's not bad, but I'm hoping that the next issue is a return to form for what we have been getting from my uh, Doug mentioned Herb Trimpey before that. So uh, let's take a look at the ads real quick. Uh, a nice hodgepodge ad and the, Inside uh, we get the full-page ad for epic the next step forward the all-new adult fantasy magazine from Marvel Um, We get the uh, superhero prize club where you can earn all sorts of prizes in cash I never did any of that. This is all, bef- kind of before my time. We get the Hulk utility belt, just like on the Hulk comic book. He always wears the belt. This is the belt no would-be superhero can afford to be without. Or if you prefer, get the Spidey, Batman, or Wonder Woman models, each with their own six-inch, their own what? Ginchy gizmos. Each only five forty-nine. Hmm. I do like this Marvel I break for super Marvel superheroes sticker. We also get some Mego dolls that we can uh, you can give by. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, The Hubba Bubba One? I like this one. Full-page house ad. Because you demanded it. In 1970, there was Conan the Barbarian number 1. In 1974, there was Savage Sword of Conan. And now there comes a third magnificent comic magazine featuring the world's greatest sword and sorcery hero, King Conan. Roy Thomas, John Buscema, and Ernie Chan team up again to bring you the awesome adventures of Conan, King of Aquilonia, and Prince Khan, the son of Conan. On sale now, a quarterly blockbuster. I have some King Conan. It's a pretty good book. Um, it, it's always, you know, because Conan had so many adventures over so much time period. It was interesting that they had one going where he was a young man and then one going where he was an, an older man at the same time. So that was pretty neat. Oh, we get the $5 savings certificate with Hulk and Spidey and then Stan Lee on the $5 bill. Uh, we get, the, oh, what's wrong with this picture? And uh, it's uh, Ron Zame did the art of Zalm, and it's got a, a cartoony picture of an old woman tackling a guy at a newsstand. It says, what's wrong with this picture? Answer, the newsstand owner has an anchovy in his shirt pocket that slid off his pizza at breakfast. Two, not all, all the trains are leaving on schedule. That may not be wrong, but it's certainly unusual. Three, the old woman's 1923 perfume turns sour in the bottle and smells like egg salad floating in hall. And number four, the man in the suit bought every copy of Marvel Comics on the stand. There's nothing wrong with that, but the old woman was there first. Marvel Comics are too good to miss. This is this is a really neat I don't know that I've I've seen this one before. <laughs> that really is neat. Woman, well, it, it, uh, it looks like something out of a out of what the or um not brand eh, or something like that. Uh, let's see, turning forward. Ah, here we go. We get bullpen boltons with stand soapbox. Uh, the bottom of that page features a ad for Spider-Woman and The Thing are now on Saturday morning TV. Your kid brothers and sisters are sure to get a big kick out of them. What's funny is that they said, catch The Thing on NBC and look for Spider-Woman on ABC. Check local listings for time and stations. Uh, I remember the Thing cartoon was from Hanna-Barbera. That was Thing, Ring, Do Your Thing! And you gotta love rhyming Thing with thing. The Spider-Woman cartoon, I remember having a few of those episodes on tape, but I don't really remember much about the show. She's got fabulous hair in this ad, though. Um, We get a full-page house ad for the Savage She-Hulk. It had to happen. Bruce Banner must give a dying girl blood transfusion of his own blood. And then as surely as night must follow day, you will meet the Savage She-Hulk. Watch for it. The most excitedly unexpected, super sensational new star from Marvel, the house of ideas. Now this uh, was covered over on Hey Kids Comics when they did their uh, 1970s uh, retrospective. They did uh, the first appearance of the She-Hulk. And actually in that episode, uh, Angela Leland joined Andrew and uh, Michael in uh, covering that. So I thought that was neat. And we get our hostess ad. It is the human torch in a hot time in the old town. THE HEADLINE OF THE DAILY BLAZE SAYS VILLAIN threatens TO SEND CITY UP IN SMOKE. GREAT BALLS OF FIRE! FLAMETHROWER WASN'T KIDDING! IT'S TIME TO FIGHT FIRE WITH FIRE! LOOK, THE TORCH! I'M GLAD HE'S ON OUR SIDE. THE TWO FIERY FOES CONFRONT EACH OTHER BEFORE THE FLAMETHROWER'S LAB. YOUR FIERY FLAMES HOLD NO TERROR FOR ME, TORCH! DON'T GET HOT UNDER THE COLLAR! GET YOUR HANDS ON THESE HOSTESS TWINKIES CAKES! "'Irresistible Golden Sponge Cake. Creamed filling, too. Twinkies really light my fire. "'Flamethrower's evil plans have gone up in smoke. Thanks to the Torch and Twinkie Cakes, "'you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes. "'I'm not sure you that the Human Torch could fight fire with fire in this scenario, "'but if listening to the Cast has taught me anything, "'it's that Johnny's solution to everything is FIRE!' So, (laughs) Johnny, we need a solution that doesn't involve fire. Oh, Johnny, 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 what are you doing? And, uh, the flamethrower, it's like, well, at least you were real creative with your name there. And, uh, I don't know, Gold Digger is still my favorite of these guys so far from the Marvel ones. I do like Gold Digger. Oh, and, and Sean Engel's reading of Gold Digger made it all the better. So, um, that's about all I've got in this, again. It's not bad, but just be warned that it is a fill-in and, uh, it's it's just a, you know, it's just it doesn't didn't really flip my proverbial skirt up like some of the earlier issues in the series did that were done by uh, Doug mentioned Herb Trimpy. So, it got a great cover though. All right, uh, I'm going to take a quick break and we will be right back to wrap up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Two True Freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. <laughs> All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time to do a little bit of listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can email me at Directive at yahoo.com. You can also um, leave me a comment on Facebook. First name is Earth Destruction, last name is Directive. And, of course, I always welcome iTunes reviews. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive on iTunes and leave us a review there if you feel so inclined. Our first email tonight comes from... Tim, our first email tonight comes from a good friend of Two True Freaks Network, Tim Elliott. And Tim writes, um, al- "And Tim writes, Earth Destruction Directive number 32, or Alas, Poor Pigmon. Greetings, Luke. Just finished Earth Destruction Directive number 32. I know I'm a little behind, and what a great show. You and Sean will have a masterful tale of monster melees and mechanized mayhem. I've never read Shogun Warriors, but with the fun I'm having with my Godzilla Essential, I will have to search the cheap bins for issues. I'm slowly working my way through the first series of Ultraman, and I was surprised at the level of violence in Episode 8. I'm sure as an 8-year-old, I would have—I would think the fight between Red King and Shandora was cool. I'm 48, and I do think it's cool. But as a parent of an 8-year-old, I might be a little concerned. That fight gives new meaning to ripping your arm off and beating you with the stump. Why is Red King called Red King? He's not red. Is it a problem with the translation? He resembles an evil Michelin man, but he throws boulders in place of radials. Let me stop right there. And um, first off, say uh, yeah. I, I that's, that's something I was thinking about when we were watching that. Is that my boys are still a little young to be watching Ultraman, but you know, I'm trying to think of monster violence. You know, is that's a bit much? Where he tears his arm off and throws it at him. So you know, it's something that. Uh, I don't, I don't know I, i'm a little i'm kind of uh in the middle on it because i think that you know we you know we as as geek dads do a good job of raising our kids to understand the difference between fantasy and reality you know uh, i keep explaining to my my, my oldest was like well is godzilla real i was like no he's not real he's a make-believe monster you know he he's kind of okay that monsters are make-believe but he thinks superheroes are real because they're played by real people you know so um so but you know i think we do a good job of of explaining that difference between, you know, what is real and what is not and what is okay and what is not and stuff like that. So, but you know, it's one of those things there. You got to look at each kind of case by case. What's okay for one little boy or girl may not be okay for another little boy or girl. It's, and it's, it's one of the the numerous things that we have to worry about as parents. Uh, as far as Red King, I don't know why he's called Red King. He's only ever been read one time, which was in uh, uh, Ultraman, the Ultimate Hero. It's it's not a translation. His name is Red the King. So it, it's supposed to be that. I don't know if maybe Red for anger or something like that. I've, I did some research after getting your email, Tim, and tried to figure out why his name is Red King, but I wasn't able to find anything. So if anyone out there knows why Red King is called Red King despite not being Red, please write in because I'd love to know the answer myself. Uh, Tim continues, have you considered doing commentaries on any of the Showa or Heisei era films? Maybe incorporate it into Commentary Monthly Monday on Two Freaks with some of the other freaks. I know everyone is doing commentaries these days, but I would love to hear your thoughts scene by scene on some of Toho's classics. I nominate King Kong Escapes as your first film. I love that film. Keep the shows coming. Cheers, Tim from Carlton, Texas. P.S. The Godzilla Color Special was my first comic on the Big G, if you don't count my issue number one of Fangoria. Uh, <laughs> that Fango number one is pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, as far as commentaries, the, the problem with doing commentaries, and I think it's a good idea, but the problem is I normally do the show on my own, and I don't know if people want to listen to me talk over a movie for 90 minutes. I You know, I mean, I I have a hard enough time believing that people listen to me talk on this show for 90 minutes uh, every month. So uh, I want to give it a shot, but I'm not sure you know, how about exactly to approach it? Do I get somebody else? Do I do it myself? So I'm definitely going to give it a shot. Um, King Kong Escapes is is a great choice. I think that'd be a lot of fun to do. So I may give that one a shot. I'd also like to try to do commentaries for some of the films that are available in the public domain, like Destroy All Planets, uh, so that it would be easier for folks to either sync them up or even I might even give a shot at actually, you know, doing the editing and syncing my commentary in with the film. It might be just an interesting project to, to tackle. Uh, I really appreciate the email. Tim, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. I hope you enjoyed uh, uh, the other shows that we've done, the um, Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle and the uh, our Christmas show. And I hope you're enjoying this show that you're listening to right now. Speaking of my partner from the... Uh, uh, Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie episode. Here is an email from Derek Crabb of the Fanholes Holes podcast, and Derek writes, Earth Destruction Directive 33, never kill the old priestess. And Derek writes, hey Luke, another great episode. This time I had to bust out the old ADV DVD set to refresh my memory, as I hadn't seen this film since its home release. Daimajin is an odd duck for me, in the sense that normally I'm usually a proponent of eye-for-an-eye justice in a fictional scenario. But once the, quote, great god is unleashed, the cure almost seems worse than the disease. There's even that ten-minute stretch after he removes the cross from the ground with the crucified prince still on the cross, where you're thinking, is the prince dead? Until he's again seen later in the film. Maybe it's just current events weighing heavy in my mind, but the vengeance of destroying the destroys the people and homes of those he was supposedly called upon to right the wrongs of. It made it difficult to have any kind of carthritic experience while watching the film, which is probably the point. Take care, Derek. And of course, Derek is uh, one of the fan holes over on Fanholes Podcast, which is FanholesPodcast.blogspot.com. And he has his uh, series, History of Comics on Film, which is h o c o f dot blogspot Now, Derek, uh, you make a real good point, and that was something that I like about the Daimajin films because we get into the, as we get to, you know, later on in the sixties, we get the idea that the heroic monster does this just kind of out of an altruistic reason. <laughs> you know, he defends the earth because he defends the earth, you know. Whereas with Daimajin, the idea that this was a, a great and terrible. Decision, and that this is—you know—the poison might be worse than the cure. That yeah, you got rid of the um, the tyrant uh, that was running things, but have you unleashed an even greater evil? It's a sort of Asian um, kind of approach when you think about it, you know. Uh, I also kind of liken this to, you know, films that would tout the atomic bomb as being the solution, but then also say, but have we not unleashed a greater problem now by, have, like, by eliminating one menace to introduce another? So it it, it does produce um, or introduce a little bit of moral gray area, which I think is, is nice for a genre that usually, as you well know, is, is very straightforward about the black and white, you know, uh, good versus evil type of scenarios, especially as we said we get into the '60s, into the later '60s. Uh, Derek, I really appreciate your email. Derek's doing some some great stuff over there on FanHoles. Uh, they had been covering Common writer Gaim on Toku Thursday. Uh, we've got some Transformers stuff. They were just doing, I think the uh, I think it's Blackthorn did the 3D Transformers comics. Really neat stuff. So definitely go check out FanHoles podcast if you're not already checking them out. I've got one more email in the queue, and it is from my good friend and fellow two true freak uh, and co-host over on the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, Mr. Sean Engel. And Sean writes, "Eat Earth Destruction Directive number 34, Mega, Ultra, Battle, Monster, Techno, Thingy. I'm horrible with these titles. And Sean writes, Commander Eddie, Ooh, I've been promoted. I'm not lieutenant. This will be a short email since I haven't been able to fully listen to the latest Earth Destruction Directive, but I will say that your esteemed guest, Mr. Derek Crabb, had me interested in this series when he compared the Ultra Heroes to Kyle Rayner. And I think, um, just to stop, jump out of the email for a minute, Derek was specifically comparing Ultraman Mabus to Kyle Rayner, if I remember correctly. That is something I can definitely get behind, Shaw says. And also, since I haven't finished the show, I'm not certain this is available for streaming online, or would one need to go to Amazon via the link at 2 True Freak Snatch to obtain this film. Looking forward to hearing the rest of the show. Keep stomping, Sean. Um, okay, Sean, I'm assuming that you've listened to the rest of the episode since writing this, so you know that the best bet for this is you can find a fan sub of it online if you just search for uh, Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie, um, and you can find a fan sub, or you could pick up the Malay um, DVD off of eBay, which is what I did. Either of those options are good for picking up a copy of Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battles the movie. As far as um, Ultraman Mavis being Kyle Rayner, remember that Ultraman Mabus is one of the shows that is now being streamed on crunchyroll.com so uh, you might want to check that out and see, uh, you know, maybe you and Derek could have a discussion on just one of the guys <laughs> about um, how much Mabus is or is not like uh, Kyle Rayner so it might be an interesting discussion thank you very much Sean and thank you everyone for writing in again if you want to write into the show it's Directive at yahoo.com and I'll repeat all this during the outro of the show so next time on Earth Destruction Directive what are we going to be taking a look at? We are jumping back over to the Godzilla series. And we're going to be taking a look at one of the seminal, all-time favorite, giant monster movies of all time. I, of course, am talking about King Kong versus Godzilla. As, uh, you know, giant ape will meet giant lizard in a battle that will go down in history. Now, to commemorate the covering of this special film, I will try to be getting a guest on. All I'm going to say is that you might know him from other 2 True Freak shows, including some that I co-host. So look out for that. And uh, I'm going to decide if we're going to be doing Shogun Warriors 16 or not. We might give uh, Shoguns a month off to cover, uh, you know, really give King Kong vs. Godzilla the coverage, but I'll see what my guest wants to do. So we may or may not have Shogun Warriors. We will definitely have King Kong vs. Godzilla, and I am really looking forward to it. It's just an absolute classic of the of the genre it's a classic of the era in general and it's a ton of fun so come on back next time for king kong versus godzilla and until then keep them stomping This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at 2TrueFreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.